Nearly a decade ago, I found myself filling the hours by listening to podcasts while my husband, Brooks, was training with the U.S. Army. Walking the streets of our Army post, I dreamt of creating something for women that bridged that gap between sermon audio and small talk. It was on the floor of my tiny closet on post that that very dream, the Dream for the Journey Women podcast, came to fruition in June of 2017. And today, by God's grace, Journey Women is now a not-for-profit ministry with the aim of moving women to know and love God more. Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Journey Women. Welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Belis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. Today, we're talking about the Trinity with Dr. Michael Allen. Dr. Allen joined the faculty of RTS Orlando in 2015 and serves as the John Dyer Trimble Professor of Systematic Theology and Academic Dean of the Orlando campus. He teaches core courses related to systematic theology and historical theology. I am so grateful for his careful handling of such a challenging topic. Dr. Allen, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. Thanks. Great to be with you, Hunter. Yeah, it's so fun uh, to get to have you here. We love RTS. I recommend the app frequently. People can interface with you actually on the app. There are many of your lectures, particularly on sanctification. But if the listeners don't know who you are, which I'm assuming they probably don't, most of your work is more academic. Can you tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah. Uh, So I've been at RTS for uh, six years now and teach systematic theology Uh, as well as some classes on books of the Bible and different periods of church history, so a a range of things. Write similarly on a number of different topics, everything from themes like justification to books of the Bible like Ephesians. When I'm not here, I'm a husband, a father, a son, and a brother, and a Presbyterian teaching elder who also serves very part-time on our congregational church staff. It's really fun to get to chat with you, particularly about a topic that is just, I just come to with such reverence. Like I was thinking about this interview last night and I'm like, how can I even utter the Trinity in my sound booth? Like it's just, of course, we are always talking about God. We're always talking about Jesus. We talk about the Holy Spirit too on episodes of Journey Women, but today we get to talk about the Trinity. And I come to that topic with trepidation because we want to do that carefully, which is part of the reason why we had you on. So thank you for your willingness to tackle it with us. Sure. I remember there's a line from Dorothy Sayers who said, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the whole thing incomprehensible, something thrown <laughs> in by theologians to make folks antsy. Uh, and there is something to that. It, it can it can be a harrowing subject, can it? Yeah, absolutely. I've once heard that many of the heresies actually involve the Trinity. So I'm like, oh, no, I better be very careful about the way that I talk about the Trinity. <laughs> Some folks have gotten themselves in trouble in, at, at different moments. And still today, it's it's a temptation, right? 
Yeah, we had some friends over who are exploring Christianity here, and their main questions were actually about the Trinity. So I think this is such a helpful question, not only for us personally, as we just want to orient our gaze to who God is, but also in evangelism and just trickling down into the nuances of everyday life. But of course, as we are approaching the topic, I think it would be helpful for us to have a clear understanding of what it is. So what is the Trinity? Yeah, I mean, the most basic thing we could say is the Trinity is a term we use just to sum up the fact that as God reveals himself, the one living and true God is at the same time mysteriously Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Uh and the one God. And that he's no less one for being Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and he's no less Father and Son and Holy Spirit for being one. And so that's why we often refer to it as one of the great mysteries of the faith. There's no way around the fact it is mysterious and transcendent and holy, and that means it's challenging too. Most certainly. Why is the doctrine of the Trinity so important? Yeah, well, we often, you know, as we're exploring the Bible or the faith, we start by thinking about what it does for us or what it might offer us, whether that's a clean conscience or moral change or reconciliation with others, God, but also maybe our family and, and neighbors. And we hopefully learn that underneath the various gifts of Jesus and the gifts of the gospel, we're actually led bit by bit to look upward and, yes. as you put it earlier, to gaze at God, who is himself the great gift, yes. the giver. And, you know, we're led to realize that the greatest of gifts is not even being forgiven. It's that being forgiven, we get God. We get to be with God. And because God is one and because there are posers in the ancient world and again today, being able to identify and know and understand the true God over and against Mm -hmm. the posers of this world and, frankly, the idols of all our sinful hearts Mm -hmm. becomes really important. You know, in the same way that I need to be able to identify who my wife is as a just very basic orientation point so that I can love and devote myself to her Mm -hmm. and not accidentally run off in directions I shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. Um, So with God, we need to know who the living and true God is. And that means thinking about Trinity. For sure. I mean, I think one of the challenging things uh, when you're trying to learn about the Trinity is that as you come to the text, the word Trinity is not there. So where do we actually see the concept of the Trinity in the scriptures? And though the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, how can we confidently arrive at the doctrine of the Trinity from the Bible statements about God and the persons of the Godhead? Yeah, it it definitely is one of those topics. It's not the only one, but it's one of those where we've come up with words to sum up how a smattering of texts, all of which are true and all of which are united, that doesn't mean they say the same thing, but they say things that cohere, how they can all be true and important. And so here we see different texts, for instance, that will speak of prayer to God, like in Ephesians 3. Uh And we'll speak of prayer as something that involves the pursuit of the Father's blessing by the Spirit's power in the Son's name. Uh Or we'll look at other passages where benedictions and grace and peace and so forth are proclaimed over the people of God. And often, as in Peter's epistles, they'll include the three persons of the Trinity. 
or we'll encounter the, the baptismal formula in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's account of the gospel, where you baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's that mysterious reality. It says the name in the singular, but then it says the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And those are kind of lived, practiced, prayed examples of what we then have to explore logically or intellectually. Okay, how can there be one name that is Father, Son, and Spirit? How can you pray to one God, but it regularly talks about involving Father, Son, and Spirit, whether it's Ephesians 3 or Romans 8? And that's where we see different texts emphasizing with respect to one or the other persons, Uh exactly the place they have in the Godhead, the relation they have to the other two. And so it becomes something of a cumulative case argument as an attempt to make sense of all of Scripture, Uh which is why it can be more challenging at times. Yeah, for sure. I have a mentor who recommended that as I was interfacing with some of those texts that you're referencing, I just put like a capital T right next to it just to highlight like, oh, there is that kind of Trinitarian language being used in that particular text. And it's amazing actually how frequent it happens. And you may pass over it if you're not looking carefully for it. So it's been really, really heartwarming for me to look for those passages. And of course, as we're doing in this series, we're talking about the distinct persons of the Trinity. So can you tell us a little bit about each one of those distinct persons of the Trinity? Yeah, we look, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all revealed in slightly different ways. You know, for instance, when we look at the gospel accounts where they come to sort of the most manifest or illumined revelation that's the clearest, Uh we can see, for instance, the Father as the one to whom even Jesus prays. How often in the gospels do we hear Jesus praying to his and our father? Uh And there's something telling there. The father is source. There's something to the name. It doesn't mean he's more God. It doesn't mean he's God earlier, but there is something to his character that is source. Nonetheless, we need to understand that. There's something to the fact that the son is revealed as the son sent from the father. The son who comes, he expresses the father. If you've seen him, you've seen the father. Uh, He's the exact imprint of his being, we read in Hebrews. Uh I mean, to use the crass phrase, he's the chip off the old block. You, You are experiencing the father when you experience the son, but the son is the father gone out further, right? He's even come amongst us. He's taken on human flesh. He's entered our midst. And that's something that is unique to him. He moves outward toward us, or, you know, there's fancy language theologians can come at just to remind us of that basic fact. We'll say that he proceeds or he is generated of the Father. And that just expresses that basic outward kind of flowing movement. And then the Spirit as well. I mean, the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, and he's the Spirit sent by the Father. And he's a spirit who comes and he points us back to Christ and instructs us in the things of Christ. And that's the way he's always been. Even in Genesis 1, he's a spirit hovering over the waters as he's been sent when God by his word is creating all things. And the spirit is the one who takes that outward movement of God's grace and he really makes it fully effectual and complete, whether that's in making the world or that's in working in you're in my hearts and redeeming us. So, you know, just in what they do, you see something of their own personal characteristic revealed, uh, you might say, by analogy. It's not an exact picture, but it's a manifestation of 
kind of character traits that that show us their personality in a sense. You know, I think many of the listeners are probably like me, where they're getting questions even from their kids. And the other day, my daughter asked me, she said, will we see the Holy Spirit in heaven? Could you kind of talk to us about how ought we describe and think about particularly Jesus and the Holy Spirit, even God too, just in the simplest of terms? What is Jesus doing now? You know, you mentioned some things about what the Holy Spirit is up to as he works in our lives. But even as we're talking to maybe some of the simplest of students, how could we communicate those things to them? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that we could say and that we really need to say is that Jesus is not on vacation. It is finished, and parts of what he did are done. Yeah. But when Stephen is being persecuted, he's able to stand there and die like a Christian because he looks up Mm. and he sees the son standing at the father's right hand. Mm. And that's got to mean he knows that Jesus is there, he's aware of Stephen's plight, and he's standing with him in God's presence. And I think it's easy, especially for those of us who are evangelical, to think, mostly about what Jesus did and accomplished and completed. And that's for good reason, right? But it's just as important to remember he's ruling the world now. He's speaking to his people. And, you know, he continues to pray for us. Yes. And the really strange thing is I can't see where he does that. But I know he does that, and he does that as a human being, yeah. not just only as the eternal Son of God. You know, he's the incarnate Son of God still, and he's inaccessible to me, but I know somehow mysteriously he exists at the right hand of the Father, and he exists there with purpose and activity. And I'll be honest, for me, that's the most freeing thing, thinking about the Christian life and thinking about ministry shoot, thinking about parenting, is that when we're in those tough situations, whether it's our own sin or trying to help others in theirs, we don't go alone. Jesus is already there before us, active and engaged. I'm not giving you good verbal pictures necessarily, but maybe that picture of, of Acts and Stephen seeing the image of him up at the Father's right hand, that may be about as good as it is. Hebrews will tell us he's up there, he's seated because he's made purification for sins, Acts pairs that with the idea he's up there and he's standing because he's acting in other ways. Wow, that is so cool. And you're right. I've been memorizing Romans 8 for like three years. It's taken me like three. I don't know why that passage is so hard to remember. (laughs) (laughs) But towards the end, it does talk about the intercession that Jesus makes for us. That has been such a comfort to me as I feel like I am at the end of my own rope, just remembering Christ is interceding for me at this very moment. And that helps me to persevere in whatever hardship it is that I'm facing in the moment. I'd love to think about the church history piece that you mentioned you so often consider. How did the apostles and the first Christian communities begin to worship not only God the Father, but Jesus of Nazareth and the Holy Spirit as God? I'm just so intrigued by that in the early church. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah. So what's fascinating is to observe where you've got pretty seamless practices take shape following Christ and his apostles' ministry, so that baptism, almost without a hitch or even a debate, starts involving baptism in water with the triune name of Father, Son, and Spirit, Mm. which is pretty remarkable because baptism was not a new thing. I mean, Jews have been baptizing people 
for centuries at that point. But suddenly it's done in this triune name, which is newly revealed. We have almost no evidence of any hiccup or any real debate or concern about that. That's really telling. We also, we obviously have limited textual availability. They didn't have PowerPoint presentations or even bulletins. But we do have some examples of what did worship look like, what prayers like. Mm. And it is pretty fascinating to see that like the prayers of Paul in his epistles or Peter, already in, say, the second century, uh, just a couple generations after the apostles, you've got Trinitarian prayers all over the place where they're praying to the Father in the name of the Son by the Spirit's power. Wow. And there's just this very common, it's not without any exception. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there'll be prayer to Father, Son, and Spirit. Mm-hmm. But there is this common order that you pray to your Father in the name of Christ your Savior, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to do so. Over time, you start to have people asking questions. Okay, how do we make sense of this? How does this fit with this verse or that chapter, particularly Old Testament references? Hmm. And so as we move forward into the third and then especially the fourth century, folks are are at times putting forward some solutions that may at first glance appear to, to clarify, but pretty quickly reveal an inability to actually hold all of the biblical teaching together. And this is where we start to see the development of what we might call heresies, Mm -hmm. um, real screw-ups. And uh, the church has to wrestle with those, and they have to go back and study Scripture and preach through it and and consider the way Christ taught them to worship, to pray, the way he described the work of the gospel. And again and again, they keep looking at these heresies and asking, not just does it fit what we see in Scripture— Mm -hmm. But two things, especially in Scripture, does it fit the way Scripture models worship and prayer? And does it fit the way Scripture reveals God's saving action? And again and again, there are different heresies of slightly different sorts that maybe make the Son subordinate and not quite God. Yeah. Or make the Spirit, you know, an agent of God, but not quite God. Mm. And variations on those. And in each case, the church keeps saying, okay, let's go back to the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Let's acknowledge there are some passages that require care and patience. But let's also look to the passages that are clear, that are repeated, and that Christ and his apostles taught us to use in prayer and in proclaiming the gospel. And let's interpret the more difficult passages by means of those clear, more central ones. And that eventually leads to things like the writing of creeds, where they're trying to to respond to some of those errors, subordinationism of the Son, for instance. And they're trying to use language much from the Bible explicitly, other language trying to paraphrase the Bible and clarify what it says. And, And that leads to things like what we call the great Nicene Creed, which is written in 325 and finished in 381. By that time, they've, they've wrestled with a number of errors on this side and that. They've gone back to Scripture. They've considered the way Jesus taught them to pray and worship, the way that he passed on the gospel message. And they've, they've been able to come to a clearer sense of how we can talk about this Trinitarian shape to the Christian life. 
Yeah. I think a lot of times people's eyes kind of glaze over when you start talking about church history. For me, for a really long time, it just didn't feel practical, like talking about church history. I'm like, that's not really going to help me do anything different as I go about my day. And the Lord knows I need to do some things different over here. (laughs) But the subordination of the son, like you were talking about, those are things that are heresies that are still prevalent even today. And so interfacing with church history helps protect us against unknowingly falling privy to a wrong way of thinking about who God is. And as we've talked about in prior episodes in this series, uh, what you believe about God is the most important thing about who you are and what you do. And so I think church history, even for people in busy seasons like us both, it's a really valuable thing for us to think through. And I really, really appreciate you making it more accessible for us. How has the doctrine of the Trinity shaped and structured the Christian faith and practice as a whole? I mean, think of things that are so low level and common and some of the way in which they're structured. So think, for instance of, you know, what's going on when we turn to Holy Scripture and we want to learn about God. I mean, the way Holy Scripture is understood is that it's a word from God, Mm -hmm. and God is involved in its production, what we call its inspiration, as well as God is graciously involved in helping us receive it, whether that's hearing it or reading it. Mm-hmm. And we refer to that as, as his illumination. Right. And what's fascinating is the way that we talk about engaging scripture is actually Trinitarian. It's just low level. It's not technical. We go there to hear from our Heavenly Father. Yeah. We go there and we believe this is the voice of Christ and his apostles, his prophets, people he has sent out. And we go knowing that the Holy Spirit guided them and will work within us to open the eyes of our heart to see wonderful things in his law. And so even the way that we talk about and pray around our reading and hearing and meditating on scripture, Uh there's a Trinitarian shape to it, you know. Same thing with prayer, where Christ teaches us to address his and our Father Christ is our prophet, among Uh other things, not just redeemer and savior, but also prophet and teacher. And he models as an elder brother to us, he models by grace how we can speak to our heavenly father. Uh And we glean that we do so in the power of the Holy Spirit as we read on. And so, you know, basic patterns of Christian life actually have this, this shape where they're directed at God the Father where Christ is the one who stepped into our midst and either provided or shown the way in which we go, and the Spirit has actually worked in our hearts to draw us into that so that it doesn't remain outside of us, but it actually brings us into that movement. And that's really as basic as it can be. Uh, You know, someone like the 17th century theologian John Owen could write 300 pages on communing with the triune God and how you commune with the Father, and then the Son, and the Spirit. And it's beautiful, and it's an overwhelming work intellectually and spiritually and and so forth. But really, at the end of the day, he's just describing basic things Christians do and trying to be perceptive about it, that when I'm praying or when I'm reading Scripture or when I'm listening to it read in worship, I'm not the only one involved, and it's not just me and a God or me and Jesus 
there's a shape of God involved all around me, before me, alongside me, and even within me. Mm-hmm. That the true God being involved before me and alongside me and within me means that every aspect of it has as much authority and power behind it as God's act of creation or his act of raising Jesus from the dead. And so that gives me great confidence that real communication and learning and change can happen when I enter into prayer or when the people of God hear his word. Life is crazy sometimes, and finding time to sit down and read the Bible can be difficult. That is why I love Dwell. When I can't find time to read the Bible, I can listen to it. The voices reading the Bible are soothing. They're not your normal narrators. Plus, you can choose calming background music and adjust the pace of the narrator's voice to get things just right. Dwell's newest release is called Dwell Daily, a fresh, thoughtfully crafted devotional that immerses you in the Word, allowing you to pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. If you're looking to deepen your engagement with the Bible this year, Dwell Daily is worth checking out. I cannot recommend Dwell enough to help you orient your mind to the life-giving Word of God throughout your day. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for your 25% discount to subscribe and spend time in God's Word. How does the Trinity distinguish Christianity from other world religions? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we have a unique relationship to the Jewish people because of shared heritage, the promises of God, the scriptures, and so forth. And so things are more complicated there. Hmm. But as we look more widely at other religions, I'm not a religious studies expert, but to my layman's knowledge, I'll say, (laughs) we do see that there's not just interestingly different language. There is just a very different picture of God that the Trinity reveals. And I think it actually is really tied together with our understanding of the fact that God is gracious and God is free. And in the gospel, God is not somehow hooking me up with benefits because I have satisfied some longing of God or I've met some requirement that God is freely and generously and graciously providing Mm -hmm. me what I in no way have merited or earned or am even fit for. You know, we can see that because we say a couple things. We say God is love. And that's not simply saying God loves, but God in his very being is love. It is God's nature to be love. That means God is love even before there's a world to love. And it was, okay, well, how on earth is that the case? Well, clearly it must mean Father, Son, and Spirit love each other. And there's perfect love there in God himself. Uh Is it surprising that the only people who believe God has that kind of love in and of himself are the only religion who describe God showing love to others apart from a quid pro quo kind of approach where Uh I scratch God's back and he scratches mine. God already has love, so he doesn't need me to get it. And so he's fully free to be gracious and to just provide forgiving, saving love to me, who's his enemy and ungodly and all of that. And he can be that. And he is that because he's Trinitarian. He's got that perfect life of love and happiness already eternally in himself. And that enables him to be 
just so remarkably liberal and free in showing his kindness to people like you or me. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned earlier is the importance of really understanding the Trinity's role in redemption and in salvation. I think that more than anything just humbles me to my core and makes me respond with praise. What's the role of each person of the Trinity in redemption? Two things are important. I think we want to say, as the church has throughout the ages, that you read the Bible and the works of God are undivided. In other words, it's not like the father's doing the thing with the law in the Old Testament and then the son <laughs> comes around and he figures we ought to be forgiving and, you know, he'll die on the cross and all that. Things get really wacky if that's what you think. And it, it pits them against each other. And inevitably, it requires you to blink for exceptionally long periods of time when you, you hit verses in the Old Testament. Yeah, sound a lot like the forgiving God of the New Testament, Mm -hmm. or you get passages in the New Testament that sound like the supposedly angry God of the Old Testament, right? So we need to be very careful. The the three persons are all there in Genesis 1, just as much as they're all there in John 1. The works are undivided. The one God is doing his thing in salvation history, from creation to new creation, to the end and perfection and glory. Uh But... But the three persons are involved in the same works in different ways. I mean, theologians have always said, you know what? Only the son has a body. Only the son is a human being. Uh The father isn't. The spirit isn't. And uh, that's got to say something about the son relative to the other two. Not that he eternally was a human, but there's got to be some reason that it's the Son who does that. There's got to be some reason that the Spirit is the one sent out at Pentecost. we got to ask what's different about them. And, you know, we can start to see patterns that tell us something about what we'd call their ordered unity in their life together. Uh The Father is source. He's never sent. He never proceeds. He is the source. And the the name Father even gestures in that direction, doesn't it? Uh Uh-huh. There are lots of ways in which he's not like a father like I am or your father is, but the name still connotes something important as source. The son is the one who is the word first in creation. He's the action where where God's eternal will, actually the rubber meets the robe and starts to have effect in the created world. And you see that again and again in Genesis 1, God creating by his word, And then John 1 will take that idea of that word that is God and that becomes incarnate, verse 14 in John 1. The Spirit's involved, though, and the Spirit's involved in its own way. The Spirit's hovering over the waters, acting powerfully but not drawing attention to itself. There in creation, the Spirit in John's gospel is is one who will be sent. It's better for him to be sent but he'll be sent not to draw attention to himself, but to instruct us and teach us further about what Jesus has revealed. J.I. Packer, the late great theologian, would say, the Spirit is like the the floodlights that shine up on the building. They don't draw attention to themselves. In fact, you're not well off if you stare directly at a floodlight, but you sure can't see anything at night if there aren't good floodlights on that cathedral or that beautiful edifice, whatever it might be. The Spirit plays that crucial role of enabling us to see and delight in and receive 
God's word in all his actions. So they work together. The reality of the Trinity impacts the way that I fold laundry. It impacts the way that I respond to my kids when they're in an argument. How does this change the way that we go about our everyday lives? You know, I just mentioned creation and then new creation or salvation. Looking at the way the Bible very explicitly talks about how each of the three is involved in those united works of God. Mm -hmm. Those are the most important acts, but they're not the only ones. Like you said, God is everywhere, or better put, we exist in God, right? He's the one in whom we live and move and have our being. So I want to learn from those big, huge, significant acts of redemptive history How can I start to perceive just the normal experience of my day? And repeated, attentive meditation on the big acts where Scripture talks about the three, it gives me patterns and categories where I can start to be more alert and perceptive. So, for instance, I often throughout the day will realize, you know what, whatever I'm doing, whether it's home or it's work, I'm by myself, I'm with others, I will realize that I'm feeling a sense of maybe conscience, a sense of responsibility to some standard outside of myself that I am not living up to or I'm not yet sort of acknowledging Uh head on. Uh, It's as though something is demanding of me attention, maybe repentance. Why is it that we so often feel that? Well, I mean, we could talk about hangups. We could talk about feeling guilt complexes. But at a much deeper level, We realize there is a word that the Son of God is communicative, and he is constantly calling out to us, Mm -hmm. whether it's through the explicit words of Scripture most Mm -hmm. powerfully or through, you know, the wonderful ways brothers and sisters can exhort us every day just in the, the, the give and take of life. And that's part of the way in which the word of Christ dwells richly, we're told in Colossians 3, in that kind of of sense of being spoken to and addressed from the outside. On the other hand, at other times, I will feel, and I don't think this is just uniquely me, I think this is pretty normal for Christians, Mm -hmm. we will have an overt sense of being more or less subjectively with it, spiritually. Uh, We will be able to feel hot or cold or high or low or alert or not. Yeah, And and that's obviously a a sliding scale and it ebbs and flows. And and we could just say there's something to our affectivity, our alertness, our own subjective experience. And and again, there are lots of things that could be a part of that. Our bodies matter. They can shape our sense of awareness and so Uh forth. We don't want to over-spiritualize. But primary, fundamental you know, is the fact that texts like Ephesians 5 will say we ought to be filled with the Spirit. Yeah. And there are certain ways in which the Spirit's filling tends to come. And we really sense something of that, not always and not perfectly, but the fact that we even sometimes can't make sense of what we sense, that tells us something real is going on. You know, there's an objective word from outside. There's a subjective sense of God working within Uh, And those are both real and they're both terribly important because, you know, every time we talk to a child or a spouse or a friend or a parent, communication depends both on an appropriate word being said and someone rightly receiving it as it's intended. And it's the same thing with communication from God. We need the objective word to come to us. Uh 
We need to be really challenged or comforted, uh, lifted up, or really put on our heels by the Word of God. But we also need to have hearts, eyes, ears that will receive it in a humble, teachable, hopeful posture. And God in the gospel, the triune God works so that the Father speaks an objective word of the Son's doing that will rightly find its place in my heart by the Spirit's power. And so because God is Trinity, God's work of trying to communicate grace to me can be effective because he makes sure both ends of the communication are effective by his grace. The Son addressing me from the outside, the Spirit living within and renovating and restoring and filling me. You know, that helps shape how you feel your lows and how you give thanks for your highs and how you turn to God in prayer, asking that there'd be clarity of that external word, there'd be the power and filling of that internal spirit. It shapes how you think about and perceive all sorts of things. That is such a great explanation. And I'm just sitting here thinking, that's why I love scripture memory so much, because it just makes the word so accessible for the spirit to bring it to mind in the moment when you're picking up cereal that's scattered all across the floor after you told everybody breakfast was over. (laughs) You're thinking, okay, no, no, no. I'm going to orient my gaze again uh, to who God is by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And it just makes it so accessible and something that that you can reach for in those moments when you really need it. So I find that to be such a helpful explanation. As we continue to think about the Trinity, could you talk to us a little bit more about how it shapes our worship and not only our worship, but also our discipleship, the way that we are teaching and training others, whether it be our own children or uh, other members of the body. Yeah. You know, I think intuitively, most of us think there's God and there's me, and I just want to get really serious and direct with God, and that will probably honor him. And understanding how worship is Trinitarian is really one of the most beautiful ways of thinking about just the goodness and the depths of the gospel of grace. You know, Jesus doesn't just forgive me. Jesus doesn't just wash me. But Jesus, according to Hebrews, actually presents my worship to God. He is that great intercessor who stands at the right hand. He's the mediator. And, you know, Hebrews 2 will talk about how he sings scripture over us. Hebrews 7 and following, we'll talk about how he intercedes, he leads our prayers in. We can boldly and confidently go, but we can do that because he's one step ahead and calling us in. You know, Hebrews 13 will say he's the great shepherd of the sheep. And so as we think about worship, it's helpful and frankly, it's just candid and honest to say our worship often stinks. We're scattered. Yes. Uh, you know, we're frustrated. Somebody an aisle over, or somebody a pew ahead, or we're thinking two steps ahead about the meal that's next, or we're trying to avoid, you know, judging the the preacher and critiquing them on the spot. It could be a million and one things, but wholehearted devotion is really hard because of who we are and what we bring to the table. But God delights to call us to worship week after week after week and to receive our praise. And he does it because Jesus is there mediating that worship to us, from us to God. That's not the only thing, though. The Holy Spirit is actually working on us. So my worship still stinks from time to time, if I'm honest about it. 
but I'm also growing and I don't stink in the same ways that I used to stink. <laughs> That's because the Holy Spirit is actually working and renovating. And sometimes I'm aware and oftentimes I'm not even aware at, the, at, the, at that moment or season. He's making me feel things that I ought to repent of. Hmm. He's making me alert to promises or comforts of the gospel I didn't even know I needed. He's opening my eyes to people in the pew ahead or the row over, not as frustrations, but as gifts. Mm -hmm. People I can serve, people I can learn from, people I can rejoice and thank God for. Maybe even the cranky person or the frustrating person or whoever the difficult person is that can make worship sometimes difficult and challenging for us. He's changing my perception of that and that relationship, right? I think somehow as we understand the work of both the Son and the Spirit in worship, we can understand God is cleansing our worship even mm -hmm. now. And so even my worst days mm -hmm. sitting in a pew and worshiping God, even the ones most marked by distraction and outright depravity, those are washed and Christ presents them to God the Father and he's mm -hmm. happy to have them in Christ's name. But also, he's sanctifying me by his spirit. He's transforming me. And so I really do have the hope, like those beautiful saints in my church who are a long ways down the road and I know aren't perfect, but sure, further down the path of following Jesus than me or than they once were, like them, I can trust that I too will be able to worship more faithfully, more lovingly, more gratefully than I do now because the spirit's at work transforming. And I think both of those are so important. We need to know that we can take our worship to God now, and he's happy to have it. But I want to be better over time, and I know I need help, and the Spirit promises that. And so there's great grace for the call to worship God, and that gives me a lot of hope. Absolutely. I think it also gives us hope, you know, when we're thinking about teaching and training others. Oftentimes for me, I am so prideful that I think, oh, I need to point this or this or this out to them. But thinking about it in that way, the way that you just described, just gives me great confidence of God's grace and that he will bring the good work that he began in them into completion. And as we continue to gaze at God together, so many of those things are going to be worked out along the way. Yeah, I find as a teacher and preacher that oftentimes you'll be watching for someone to have that aha moment that clearly would, of course, be visible and palpable, and, and you don't see it. And so you, you talk a little <laughs> further, and you repeat the point, and you get a little louder, and you go more emphatic. And at the same time, there's, there's great freedom in being reminded, I don't need to keep talking at them till something happens. I can trust that I'm testifying to God according to his word yeah. as best as I can, and more importantly, God is here, God is present, and God ain't leaving. And so I can trust that whether it's right now or it's five minutes from now or it's a year from now, God can do far more than I can imagine. He can shoot straight with a crooked stick. He can take whatever, you know, paltry message I've offered, and he can work life-giving grace there. That just frees you to be finite and to be a human and not be in charge. For sure. I mean, speaking of finite, you never feel more finite than when your friends come over and they say, hey, can you tell us about the Trinity? <laughs> That's like <laughs> one of those questions that I think all of us uh, have a little bit of trepidation when we hear it, particularly in evangelism. How might we rightly respond to questions like that as we are engaging in evangelism and discipleship? 
I mean, I think there are all sorts of ways we can get at it. The bigger challenge in evangelism and what we might call apologetics or addressing skeptical questions or Mm -hmm. just outright confusion Uh is not so much a nifty response to how you conceptually explain three and one. It's rather to say, let's think about the fact that this is mysterious. Uh Um, That's good news, not bad news. And it's good news, not bad news, because God does not offer himself as your latest guru or political party leader or self-help guide. God suggests in the Bible that any and every effort we make to fix ourselves, right ourselves, and improve ourselves may be good for a season, but it will not prove to work. And God offers himself as the only way, truth, and life. And that means if this one is the only one who is the way, the truth, and the life, this is the only true God who can save and redeem, then he's going to be weird and hard to know by definition. Think about every discipline, whether it's psychology or economics. We know and and can speak more authoritatively about things when they are replicable, and we can look at a lot of examples. You can't do a psychological study on one person. It bears no weight. That's anecdote. That's guessing. Here and only here, we are speaking of somebody who is by definition in a class of their own. And that means they will seem funky and strange and different and transcendent and challenging and mysterious. And that's good confirming news because Mm -hmm. that's the kind of being they say they are. I would just want to say, you know what? The fact that here we really do sense the limits of our mind becoming very apparent. We really do feel like we're having to pull out the wiring of our brain and rewire it to say things like three and one and one and three. That is not a sign of defeat. That's actually a gift. That means you're Mm -hmm. starting to get it. And the only gospel that will save is a gospel of such a mysterious God. Uh And sort of the the mystery of understanding the nature of God is a sign you're on the right track. It is not a signal of defeat. Ultimately, I think that's the biggest gift we can give people. And that's why the Bible, again and again, will not just use the term mystery, like in Uh Ephesians, but it'll use images that are mysterious. I mean, you know, you read the burning bush episode when God so powerfully appears. I mean, that is a strange and funky image of a a non-consumed fire burning up a bush. Or you think later in Exodus 32 to 34, and Moses is up there, and he wants to see God, and God says he can see his backside around the edge of the rock, which is a weird notion of God's rear. And when the Lord passes (laughs) by, it describes sound. That's odd. That's really weird. So the fact that our language sounds weird and, and really pushing the limits of logic, it actually fits the kind of images that the Bible gives. God is transcendent and mysterious. He is more dissimilar than he's similar, as theologians will put it. And that just humbles us in terms of our ability to get our arms around him. So I think we've got to say we want to have confidence we can apprehend him. Uh-huh. But we want to be very humble and say we do not comprehend God. We do not get our arms around him. We are mere finite creatures. He grants us a glimpse, a gaze, uh, Uh but we don't have a God's eye view. We don't have the lenses for that. 
and that's apparently good for God, so it should be good for me. That's something that takes getting used to by trust, I think, and has ever since Eden when we wanted a God's eye view. Uh But that didn't go well. So I, I, you know, I think that the path of faith and trusting that that what he reveals is sufficient and what we can understand is apparently good enough for now. That's important. That's Uh that's, I think, where we can work apologetically, because there's really no way to shortchange the fact that one and three are just hard to square. And, and there's really no plumbing the depths and getting to the end of that where there's like a simple, straightforward thing. Yeah. But we can address that that shouldn't undermine, that should actually encourage our hope. Yeah, for sure. There's nothing more comforting than having a big God that we can't wrap our brains right. around. I know that the listeners are probably feeling like I am just really yearning to learn more about who God is, particularly the Trinity. Do you have any helps or maybe some practices that you would recommend for us if we want to grow in our understanding of the Trinity? Yeah. Uh, let me give you one practice and then just one help if someone wants to read. So a practice would be, I would strongly encourage Uh, folks, in your prayer life uh, to take up some of the prayers of the New Testament, in particular the prayers of Paul and of Peter, where we've got more of them. And you could just go, say, through the epistles of Paul Mm -hmm. and start with those prayers. And don't just notice what are the things he asks for or thanks God for, Mm -hmm. but watch also how does he name Father, Son, and Spirit. Yeah. Or often he'll refer to God, Lord, and Spirit. How do they appear? What are they doing? What are they thanked for? What are they being asked to do? That's something you can actually practice doing that and practice asking those things for your own day to day. Practice thanking God for those things in your day to day. That'd be one practice to put to use. A second thing, if, if folks want an introductory book that they could look at, that's going to give you more than we've discussed in just the last few minutes, but is also meant as a first read. I would say read my colleague Scott Swain's little book, creatively titled The Trinity. <laughs> is that in Crossway's Systematic, the Short Systematic Series? It's in Crossway's Short Systematic Study Series. It's going to get you some of the most important things, but in very accessible ways. Uh-huh. And then it'll point you if you want to read on to where you could go next from there. Very cool. Definitely one of my simple joys. I love systematic theology, which is probably what led me to you in the first place. When I saw that on your bio, I was like, that makes sense. (laughs) We find each other. We find each other. There aren't that many of us, maybe. I don't know. Uh, Well, that's definitely one of my simple joys. But one of our practices on the Journey Women podcast has become to ask, what are your three simple joys? And it used to be just that. But because this entire series is on knowing and loving God more, I would love to hear what are three of your simple joys when it comes to knowing and loving God more? I think the first will be the most surprising. I find it a simple joy that God changes what frustrates and hurts over time where uh, as I grow in Christ, I learn more and more slowly. Yes. Slowly, I learn more and more to be increasingly pained, not by just things that inconvenience me, Hmm. but by things that don't fit in God's kingdom, whether those are things in my own heart or in the world around me. I just take it as a great joy, one of the gifts of the gospel, that what I lament 
is something that changes and grows and I think is purified over time. Mm, I'd love that. Secondly, at the end of the day, and sort of a paired concept, the simple joy of being able to look back and to review a day with its challenges, its blessings, its opportunities, uh, its limits, to be able to say whether I can identify it all or not, that God laid this out for me, and this was meant to grow me up Mm. and to make me happy in God. Mm. That's just a remarkably peaceful and confidence-inspiring way to be able to wrap up any day and not to be so anxious and so angst-ridden. So that kind of sense of gratitude and provision is great. And then third, I mean, I would just say the simplest joy for my Christian life has got to be and has been for years, the gift of the Psalms. Yes. Whether that's in worship together with my congregation or in reading it uh, with my family, or I'm somebody who prays through the Psalter every month, Mm. uh, month after month, year after year. And I know that's been the single most important thing for me as a gift of God to grow me up, to change my desires, to teach me more of him. I think to instruct me in ways about how I'm to live. And, you know, every day I'm surprised by what bits of various Psalms are going to jump out and challenge me or comfort me or give me a word to offer to somebody else in a situation I wouldn't have guessed. Day after day, that's like manna from heaven. Yes, the songbook for God's people. We're working over here, my kiddos and I, to memorize as many as we can. We're slowly chipping away at it, and they're very easy to memorize. I think when I mentioned scripture memory earlier with repetition, they're much easier than Romans 8. Let me put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was thinking. You know, the Journey Women podcast was really birthed out of feeling like I had been blessed with a host of mentors in my own life. And that was what it originally was, was just conversations with my own mentors. And over time, it's uh, led me to connect with people like you, which has been such a gift today. And we'd love to hear from you. Who is it that's had the greatest impact on the way that you know and love God? Yeah, I would say there are a number of answers that come to mind, but probably the first would be my father, who uh, my entire life has been a remarkable father, but also Christian example. And then for most of my life has also been a pastor. And so uh, when I was uh, six years old, he became a pastor. And that meant he was not only my father and the closest example of a Christian man to me, but he was also my local congregational pastor for, you know, a dozen years. And so Whatever that may be, whether it's the challenges of being a husband and a parent, or it's thinking about ministry challenges and some of those difficult situations, or it's simply just the ins and outs and rhythms of ordinary Christian life and struggle and and joys and successes, he's been just a great confidant, a great example, a great encourager, someone who's been candid, but who is never you know, made me feel off-put or feel looked down upon. You know, I just give thanks for the way in which that's been encouraging and uplifting and insight providing and just deeply joyful to get to have him as a father for almost 40 years now. 
Wow, that's such an encouragement to those of us who are parents and whose ministry begins, well, for me, right after I leave this closet. So thank you for that. (laughs) And thank you so much for the time that you have given us today. My heart is truly warmed, and I just really count it such a grace to get to uh, learn from you in this capacity. I appreciate you joining us on the show. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Man, I hope you found this conversation as clarifying and helpful as I did. If you were scrambling to take notes, be sure to check out the show notes on our website at journeywomenpodcast.com, where we include noteworthy quotes, scripture references, and discussion questions that you can use to continue this conversation with men and women in your local context. If you enjoyed this conversation today, please do take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Facebook. It really does help get the podcast into the hands of other women who might find it helpful on their journey to glorify God. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. We are so grateful for them and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week.